0: Grace and peace to you. It's very good to be with you. I bring you greetings from the First Baptist Church of Lisbon. They already met at this point because it's six hours ahead of us. It's very good to be with you. You know that when you come into a state, when you're driving, you always have kind of a billboard with the name of the state with a saying, right? You go into Alabama and it says, sweet home Alabama, right? Did I say it with the right pronunciation? When you come into Mississippi, I think that's how you say it, uh, it has several sayings, but my wife's favorite one is, it's like coming home. And so that's how we, we feel among you, and we hope that you feel the same. It's great to be with you. Let me start this way, reminding us of something that sometimes we don't remind as often as we should. Humans are mortal beings. You and I, you and I are mortal. Each of us has a certain amount of time to live in this life. We were all conceived at a particular time. We were all born at a specific time. And all of us, all of us without exception, will face death. We are mortal beings. That is our nature. As a pastor, as you can imagine, I attend many funerals. And a few things, few things in life humiliate us like death. Death offers this stark realism, a cold and inescapable sobriety. It is a fact that we cannot control, but it's one of the few moments... When human beings cannot but face reality, it's no coincidence that the Bible calls death the last enemy. The last enemy. But at the same time, it is a condition that humanity cannot come to terms with. We cannot get used to it. Death is a fact, but at the same time, if life ends abruptly with nothing to follow it, then life would have no meaning. Death would not only be abrupt, but also the end. And if death means the complete and irreversible annihilation of each of us, then life has no purpose. It's not worth living. So life after death has been a permanent theme in human history. Because intuitively, human beings know That there has to be something after we die in this world. Otherwise, then everything would be arbitrary. What would it matter what we have done if death is the end? What does it matter if we live in one way or another, if we all have to die in the same way? What does it matter if we do good or evil, if those things even exist, if there are no consequences after this life. As we read in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. Let us do whatever, because nothing has a meaning. And in another book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, we also read this. Ecclesiastes 3, 11. That God, He, has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity in man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, eternity is something beyond our comprehension. As limited as you and I are. But it is, as the text says, In the hearts of men, even if we can fully understand it. You see, it is something that we cannot fully understand it, but it is real. Brian May, the guitar player of one of the most famous rock bands of all times, the Queen, wrote, wrote this. There's no time for us. This is one of their most known songs. There's no time for us. There's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? Who wants to live forever? Who wants to live forever? I do ask you, do you want to live forever? Or perhaps another question, perhaps more relevant and vital. How can you achieve eternal life? You see, the Bible teaches us about these things. So I invite you to open your Bibles so that we can learn about eternal life in the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 5. Let's meditate a few moments. Let's think about the first 12 chapters, 12 verses of this chapter 1 John 5 1 to 12. This is what God's Word says, 1 John 5, 1-12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. In the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in itself, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. In this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See again. Let us read again verses 11 and 12, which are the main truth of this text. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. God offers eternal life. It's a reality. It's real, concrete. And John is speaking, note, to Christians, those who already have this hope of eternal life. And John speaks in a way that makes clear that eternal life is not just something that is future, but that John says, that we already have. Note the verb tense. It says, God gave us eternal life. And then it says, whoever has today, present, the Son, has, present, life. But the Apostle says more. John says this eternal life can only be found... In the Son of God. Eternal life consists, says John, in having the Son of God. But of course, this raises a question what does this mean of having the Son of God? What does it mean to have the Son? And this is the question that John answers among others. And I want to take just a few moments to think about answering this question what does it mean? To have the Son. Because having the Son means eternal life. So it's something that matters. Most important question in our life. How can we achieve eternal life? If it means that we have the Son, what does it mean practically? And I want to answer that question in just two simple truths. Two simple words. Faith, repentance. What does it mean to have the Son of God? What does it mean to have eternal life? It means faith and repentance. See the beginning of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. See now the second part of verse 5. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So this is point number 1. Faith. To be able to receive the eternal life that God offers us implies, first of all, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The man that we call Jesus has come to be known as Jesus Christ, as if it were two names, right? Jesus first, Christ next. But do not forget that Christ is actually not a name. It's a title. A title that comes from the Greek word that we translate as Messiah. The one who was appointed by God with a particular role, with a particular function, that was specifically used and said, the word Messiah, to a prophet or a priest or a king. Someone that God anoints for a particular redemptive purpose, for salvation purpose. But concerning Jesus, we say that He is the Christ. He is The Son of God. Jesus is not just one more that God has anointed and sent. He is actually the one. The one that we really need. The one and final Messiah, Christ. So in order for someone to receive eternal life, we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is truly the Son of God. You see, this is what Christians believe. We believe that the Son of God, who is God with the Father from eternity, has actually became a human being in the person that we call Jesus. We believe that this Son of God became a man, that He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that He rose on the third day, that He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We believe that these are historical truths that matter. We believe not only that there is a God, but that this God in the person of the Son has become a man. And, And if this is true, then we need to come to terms with this man. Then we need to know Him. Because he is God-made man. Do you know this man? Do you know Jesus? Because he is not just one more. He is the one in whom you can have eternal life. You see, these are the truths that we simple, simply call the gospel. That means good news. That God, in spite of our sin in spite of the fact that we deserve His condemnation because of our rebellion against Him, has actually, in the person of the Son, became a man to solve something that we could not do for ourselves. That He lived that perfect life that we could not live. That He died on that cross for the guilt of our sins. You see, when John wrote this letter... There were some who claimed to be Christians but denied what we call the Incarnation. Incarnation is God made flesh, God made man. They denied that God had become a human being. He had already stated this in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, when he said, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You see, this is so important that John reminds them that it is not possible to have eternal life unless it is through Jesus, Jesus God made man. That the incarnation was real. And again, if God became man, then we must know We must believe and trust this man because there is none like him. When John says, see verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. You see, John is referring to two central moments in Jesus' life. His baptism and his death. Those who deny the incarnation, deny that Jesus, God Himself, could have actually died. How is this possible? But what John wants them to know is that if God was not made man, and if He was not fully man, if He has not obeyed the Father in all things, and if He actually has not died on that cross, then you are still dead in your sins. Then you are still condemned. You have no hope, no possible hope before God. It's a denial, a denial of the Christian faith. You see, this is exactly what the author of the letter to the Hebrews taught when he said in Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For surely, he says at some point, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which means human beings. Therefore, he says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You see, Jesus had to be fully a human being, had to be a complete human being in all that it means to be a human being, except sin. The question is why? See what the author to the Hebrews says. He says, So that he need to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why is it necessary, essential, vital, that we believe that God became man in the person of Jesus? Because if Jesus was not fully a man, and if He did not die on that cross, He cannot represent you and me. But if God became man, then we have hope. Because in spite of our sins, if we trust in Him, if we fully trust in Him, and if we have fully repented of our sins, then our sins were paid on that cross. That's how important it is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the true Son of God. And John adds this on verse 6. In the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us this ability to understand and believe these things. But you see, our faith is not just something subjective or experiential, which it is. It's part of our faith, but it's more than that. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit that convinces us of this historical truths. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, enlightens our hearts to receive them. But they are objective truths. Jesus was born. Jesus was perfect in everything he did. Jesus died on that cross. Jesus resurrected on the third day. Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. In our hope, Jesus will return. So what does it mean to have the Son? It means believing in this testimony that we have about Jesus. See verses 9 to 11. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in, its, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. What is a testimony? A testimony is a statement of truth, of reality. What does a witness do? He speaks of what he has seen, of an objective reality that he has witnessed. So in the same way, we believe in a real and historical person who was born, lived, died, and rose again. And we believe that this testimony is true. To have eternal life is, first of all, to receive and truly believe in the person of the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. To trust it, to trust these truths to the point that our lives are completely transformed and shaped by it. That God became a man to save sinners like you and me. And that changes completely. This is the promise that we have from God. If we truly put our faith in the Lord Jesus as our only and sufficient Savior, He will give us a new life. Look again at the beginning of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see, we are certain that we have received this new life when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is the consequence of the new life that God has given to us. Now understand this. This faith is not just saying that we believe it to be true. So it's not just something in our minds. This faith is a trust that leads us to the point that it becomes the truth that guides your life. It becomes the compass by which our thoughts are measured, truths evaluated, decisions made. Do you understand it? If you come to know this man, Jesus, this God-made man, it has to transform your life your life will not be the same anymore. Because it will change completely what you believe, the way that you perceive the world, and the goals that you want to achieve also. You see, it is not possible to truly believe in Jesus and our lives to remain the same. It's not possible to say that we believe in Jesus and it's just something that is in our minds that doesn't change completely the way that we live. Let me quote you just from a man who persecuted the church violently. But then this man, Jesus, changed his life. He's known by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this letter, second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, 14 and 15. This man that once persecuted the church violently, that was completely, again, this man called Jesus that would kill the people that believed in him and spoke about him, was completely transformed. And now he writes to a church saying this, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, referring to Christ, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Can you say that you have this new life? Can you say that you have the Son? Can you say that you truly know God, and you truly know His Son, Jesus? Can you say that your faith Your trust, your hope in this life are placed solely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you should ask yourself this morning, how do I know that my faith is true? How can I measure if eventually my faith is not just something of my mind, but it did not reach my heart? That's where we come to point number two, repentance. See verse 1 again, But, but now let's read the whole verse. John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You see, this new life we receive in Jesus changes, first of all, how we relate to God. Because of what Jesus has done, We are not reconciled with God. In the past, we lived in disobedience. Now we live in love. We love the one who created us. We love and worship the one who saved us. Jesus paid the price of our sins. We are no longer condemned before God. The the hostility that there was between us and God is completely erased. We are reconciled. We were were adopted to the point that we truly are. And John says in this letter, Behold this amazing thing. That we were made and are called children of God. We are His sons. You see, this change of life is called repentance. Which actually means literally change of mind. But it involves all of our lives. It changes in the way that we think. It changes the way we act. You see, note note this. It's more than recognizing that we make mistakes. It's more than fearing the consequences of our sins. But it's also more than remorse, more than sadness for our sins. It is a radical change of life. Is the fact that we start now to abhor, to hate our sin because it's so offensive to God. We start to see our sin as actually something not only wrong, but bad. It's important to remember, you see, that our faith in Christ and our love for God, you see, they are concrete realities. Love more than words is action. John had already stated this in 1 John 3.18, when he said, little children, and see his concern as kind of a spiritual father to them. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you see, this repentance, a consequence of the new life which we have in Jesus, results inevitably in love. And this love is twofolded. John collects the love for God with the love for the children. Or as John said right at the end of chapter four, in uh, chapter four verse twenty, if anyone says, "I love God" and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you see the love for God? And love for the church are interrelated. One cannot exist without the other. And this is very important to us so that we understand that love is not just a feeling. It's an action. It's something that is visible. People can see the way that we love others. And by that, they see the visible evidence of our love for God. You see, what John shows in verses 1 to 3 is that love for God and for the church is kind of a circle. See the end of verse 1. It says, whoever loves God, loves God's children. And then verse 2, how do we know that we love the brethren, God's children? When we love God and keep His commandments. (laughs) We love God, we keep His commandments. We keep His commandments, we love the children. We love the children, that's an evidence that we love God. Or to put these truths in other words, the evidence of our love for God is manifested in the way that we love the church. But we can only know or only love our brothers and sisters if we first love God and obey him. It's a circle. Brothers and sisters, the love we have for one another is the Evidence, visible evidence of God's love in us. But this love, you see, cannot be manufactured. It's not a pretend to love, but it's not also a love that it is created from within us, so to say. We love others on the basis of God's love for us. Our love flows from God's love for us. We can only truly love others to the extent that we understand the love that God has for us and to the extent that we respond to the love of God. It's God's love in us that gives us the ability to love others as God has loved us. Do you see? This love is once again qualified by John. Because it says that this love is an obedient love. How can we know that we truly love God? When we obey his commandments. And now John adds something. Very important to us as Christians. By the end of verse 3. And his commandments are not. What does the text say? Are not burdensome. You see the same commandments that in the past might have seemed like a prison or impossible to achieve becoming the life of the christian something that we not only love but we want to fulfill but also that we are given the ability to fulfill the ability to obey the apostle paul puts it in this way in romans 12:2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we start to see God's will as something that is actually perfect, something that is actually good, acceptable, desirable as we continue to grow also in our hate for sin. You see, God's will, which used to crush us because of our inability to obey it, is now recognized as good and pleasing. You see, John had already exhorted these Christians in chapter 2, verses 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, John reminds them of a certainty On verse 4 of this chapter, chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Before we had a new life, we were dominated by all kinds of desires and emotions. You see, the Bible teaches us that we were slaves of our desires, of our appetites. But when we received a new life in Jesus... We are no longer slaves of these things. You see, John is not saying that we no longer have evil desires or that we no longer sin. But what he does teach us is that we are no longer enslaved by these things. This means that a power is given to us, as John says, to overcome the world. To overcome these things. We call this the process of sanctification. It's not that when we are uh, born again, that we are immediately perfect. But that our hearts are transformed. And slowly but surely, we grow in God's grace. We grow in hating our sin. We grow in the understanding of the evilness of sin. As we grow in love for God, for His law but also the power to obey it. That's what it means to overcome the world. And look, look the reason why we are able to do this. Look at the end of verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, what does enable us to do this? He says, our faith. John doesn't mean that is something in us, note, note, note this, or our ability to overcome the world, because faith is not our own doing. Note that if someone has faith, he needs to have faith in something. So if faith means trust, it means that we trust in someone or something. For Christians, it means that we believe in Jesus, so we put our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him. So when John says that we overcome the world because of our faith, he is not saying because we are very good. He is saying because of the object of our faith. Because we put our faith not in us anymore, so Christians don't go on that talk, believe in yourself. Because we truly know... That if we trust in ourselves, things will go wrong. But we trust in Jesus. We trust in what He has done, what He has accomplished, and our hope in Him. That's why it is our faith that overcomes the world. Because now our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus. In the same power that was at work in Jesus, to the point that resurrected Him from the dead. Ephesians 2, is the same power that works in us. And it is that power that renews us and gives us the ability to overcome the world or to overcome sin. That's why then verse 5 puts it this way. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, our trust is in Jesus, not in ourselves. You see, Jesus had said that. Concerning himself in John 16, Here, John speaks about us. Us overcoming the world. But in John 16, Jesus had said this about himself. He said, I have said these things to you. John 16, I have said these things to you. That in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, when John mentions these words, he is bringing us back to the person of Jesus. He is again not saying, I believe in you guys. I know that you're able to do it. No. He's saying because of Jesus, because of who He is, because of what He has done, and because you put your trust in Him, then just as He overcame the world... You will have that power also to overcome the world. So you see, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They always go hand in hand, and one cannot exist without the other. But both our faith and repentance are the result of this new life. See verses 11 and 12 again. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. In this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, brothers and sisters, note John's concern. This letter, the letter of 1 John, that I believe that you are studying it or started to study here in the evening services, it's not an easy letter. It's a letter full of exhortation, of correction. But note why John is concerned. John is concerned for them for their eternal life. You see it's not a minor concern. So the question I have for you today is that do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Is your faith visible in the way that you live in obedience to God? in the way that you love the brothers and sisters in the local church? You see, this is the most important question that you can answer in your life. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you have him? Back to Brian May's song that I quoted at the beginning. Allow me to quote a little bit more. He wrote this. There's no chance for us. It's all decided for us. This world has only one sweet moment set aside for us. And we can have forever. And we can love forever. Forever is our today. Who wants to live forever? Who wants to live forever? Forever is our today. Who waits forever anyway? If Brian May is right, then our lives are worthless. If these words that I just quoted are true, what a disappointment. All Brian May has to offer us is to say that eternity is today. There's nothing to do. Nothing has any meaning. We're all going to die. Forever is today. Let us enjoy the present because there's nothing more to life than the present. But Brian May is wrong. God created us to live forever. Sin has indeed brought death into this world. It's true that in this world, our life will end. But that does not mean the end of our existence. In Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life. A life that we can already experience today. A life that is to be lived today in love and obedience to God and to others. But this life can only be found in one person. He is the only mediator between us and God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our hope. It is in him that we place place all things that we put all our trust in. This is a life that is offered to everyone. You see, the life that Brian May proposes to us is a joke compared to the life that God gives us. It's a life that promises only today. You can have fun today. You can have great pleasure today. You have no hope for tomorrow. But our God, even in spite of our sin continues to offer us life. So receive this life today. And if you are already a Christian, be encouraged. Because if your trust is in Christ, in spite of our challenges, in spite of your sufferings, in spite of your age and decaying body or mind, the Lord Jesus does not change. The Lord Jesus has accomplished all that you need. So trust in Him. Even if your body fails, you can trust in Him because He does not change. If you are not a Christian, repent today. Do not live one day longer (laughs) believing in yourself. Do not live one day longer thinking that this world is the end of all things because it isn't. Because you will face God. And if you are not in Christ, you will have no hope. Isaiah 55, 1-3. to Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, because every time we come to you, and every time we read your word, every time We ponder upon your Son. We are reminded of the great hope and joy that we have in Him. We are reminded of the great privilege that it is to come to you and call you Father. And know that even in spite of our sin, even in our own weakness, even if we don't understand all things, That we are sure that you are a good father that hears our prayers. A father that does not give us everything we want. But we know that you give us everything we need. Oh, Father, I do pray that for those who are here and are truly your sons already. That we might leave this place encouraged also exhorted, so that we might fully put our trust in the Lord Jesus. And if there is anyone here that does not know you yet, that you might use your word preached today to convince them, so that they might come to know also.